Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Amy West, Head of US Digital Transformation and Innovation at Novo Nordisk. Amy has built and led the Innovation Center of Excellence focused on digital and innovation strategies and driving development of multiple groundbreaking initiatives. Amy is a champion of change and revolutionizes the digital transformation space by exploring diverse opportunities using agile methodologies. A true visionary, Amy leads through influence and collaboration to identify test and scale disruptive opportunities. Hi, Amy. Welcome to Women to Women podcast. So excited to have you here with us today. Hey, Divya. I am thrilled to be a part of this programming and I really appreciate you asking me to chat today. So let's start all the way back. How was childhood? What were some of your dreams, ambitions growing up? What did you want to be? So I was blessed with a really, truly wonderful, almost fairy tale childhood in a sense. Um, I grew up in a really, really rural area in Pennsylvania. I actually grew up in a village called New Franklin, and it sits outside a very small town called Chambersburg, which to listeners, they might be able to connect more with Gettysburg. It's we're about 20 minutes from Gettysburg. So it's a very historic area in relation to the United States history of the Civil War. And actually the the road that my my house is off of our drive is um it was the road it's called New Franklin Road and it was the road that the Confederate Army took as they were retreating from Gettysburg. So there's a lot of history there and I grew up I grew up on the battlefields of, of Gettysburg, but I also grew up on a farm, which was wonderful. It was a bit of a gentleman's farm. Um we had about 50 acres and my dad actually still lives there to this day. My dad was actually a physician um and that was his his occupation, but we lived on this farm and we had had, uh, we raised black Angus, a, a head of black Angus, which was a, a cattle type. And we had cornfields and apple orchards and lots and lots of pasture land that I spent my childhood growing up outside, whether it was warm, sunny, um, or if it was the winter time, we were out playing outside. And I had, I had a sister and a brother, an older sister, a younger brother. I was in the middle. Being in a pretty rural area, we didn't have a lot of neighbors. So we really played with each other quite a bit. And we had some, some neighbors, but in order to get to them, we had to walk across the cornfield to get there. It really was a very safe environment to grow up in, especially as I, I see what kids have to, to grow up in today. And really wonderful salt of the earth community of people that it truly was, a, it really was a village that you, you you trusted each other and you took, you looked after each other and you cared about each other. You respected each other and you helped each other when you needed it. Uh, so it was really a wonderful foundation. And it's something that, you know, I will be forever grateful to my parents for for doing for me and my my brother and my sister. That sounds so nice. You know, I think kids want something like that to yeah. be able to be outside. Yes, it was great. And I guess you know, also to answer your question about my dreams, like so, I grew up around animal. I'm a big animal lover, and we also had dogs and cats and um, you know a lot of critters everywhere. And so I was always a big animal lover. I as a, as a child, um, though I because my dad was a doctor, I really thought that's what I wanted to do with my life, and and. I aspired to something along in, in the healthcare lines, being a healthcare practitioner of some sort. Um, so that in my early days, those were my aspirations. And I, I actually even had my own little biology and chemistry lab in our basement that I had set up. My parents had got me different tools and kits and things like that. I actually even had a, a dissection kit. I, I had, I was dissecting um, these huge gross crickets and I had these little frogs and I just thought that was the greatest thing on earth. That was my, those 
those are my early days and my early aspirations, which clearly things have changed along the way because I did not become a physician, but, um, and it really was, you know, through high school, we had biology class where we did dissections of different, different animals, usually frogs, and I was okay with it. And then when I got to college though, my, my first biology class, my freshman year in the, in the dissection lab or the biology lab, we had these frogs that were, they were the size of like a small dog. I don't know where they came from, but all the veins were dyed red and blue to indicate which direction the blood was flowing. And there was something that just, I just couldn't do it. I, I could not do it. And it was, there was something in me that literally snapped that day. And I'm like, I, I, I can't do it. So that's what kind of got me off the medical path early on. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting, right? Very similar story. I had biology and math until high school, but we did this dissection of a mice, white mice. It was just so cute. I couldn't do it. And that's when I knew that's not the path for me either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also couldn't take that formaldehyde smell. I was so strong. I mean, I didn't have that issue when I was in high school, but everything was a lot smaller. And I don't know, it was just, I, I still have that formaldehyde smell in my brain. I, I still remember that. So I was like, Ugh, not going to work. <laughs> So then what was the next plan then? I didn't have a plan. I really wasn't sure when I went to college. I, was, I wasn't really sure I, what I wanted to do. I went to a liberal arts school. I went to the University of Richmond in Virginia. I did really struggle. Like the first two years weren't a big deal. because It's, you know, it's general studies and all of that. I enjoyed it. And I was an English major. I actually had a religion minor as well. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I remember having that conversation with my dad because I guess the second semester of your sophomore year, you had to think about what you're going to declare. And they had a business school that was, was um, well-known and well-respected. And my sister had actually, she went to school there too. And she had actually gone through their business school. And I was thinking about that. Um, but I just didn't know if that, if my heart was in that. And I was also, I loved history. And so I was thinking, well, maybe I could go into law. I really was enjoying law. And or I, I love the idea of being a lawyer because, you know, what you would see back in the day, like LA, LA law and all that glossy legal stuff. And I thought, well, maybe I would go to law school. But I remember my dad saying to me, he was like, you know, this is a time in your life when you can get an intellectual education, educate your mind, educate your soul, and it will come to you through this process. So I kind of took the pressure off myself a little bit. As I was continuing, I thought, oh, I definitely think I want to go the law route. And I was really interested in politics as well. And so I thought, graduate, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to Capitol Hill. I'm going to work on Capitol Hill. I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to be a policymaker and I'm going to change the world. And so that was my new plan. As I, as I did that, I, I graduated and I went to Capitol Hill and I worked on Capitol Hill for a lobbyist at the time. I also worked in political fundraising. And so I got a taste of that world and realized pretty quickly that while it was a lot of fun, it was no place for somebody like me because I just felt that in order to drive a policy or whatever, th there were compromises that needed to be made. And sometimes, you know, there were compromises that you might not be comfortable with. And it just wasn't going to be the right thing for me based on how I was raised and what I wanted for myself and what I feel like my parents wanted for me. So I just realized that a, a life in politics was not going to be the right thing for me, but I was still interested in the legal, the legal thing. So I was, I was actually, I left and I started to work at a law firm, courting uh, a global law firm there and, and realized pretty quickly because we were doing anti-dumping and anti-circumvention law related to 
to DRAMs, VRAMs, and motherboards. It was a technology, a technology business, or I guess focus. And it was so boring. <laughs> it was brutal. And we would be there all night long responding to different things that we had to respond to. And it was just, it was a drain. It was a drag and it was not interesting. And so that that's why, I, you know, this LA law stuff is not true to what the legal world is. I was supposed to be in a courtroom, you know, like arguing my case or whatever, or somebody else's case. But I was like, this just isn't going to work for me. So I then pivoted again and I decided, you know, I'm going to go back to business. I'm going to get my MBA. Cause that was the thing too. Like in college, my dad was like, you know, you can always get your MBA. You don't have to go to the business school and undergraduate. You can finish that. And, and as well as any other thing that you want to continue on to. So I changed course and I got my MBA. My marketing was my sort of my focus. I think it was also a nice way to kind of marry up my English background and some of the things that I had learned in undergraduate. Um, I started working for financial, uh, basically financial services type of organization in the insurance space. It was back in the day when it was really about direct response marketing. And it was really about um, buying data or having or having databases that you would then mass mail to. You would do a lot of A-B testing um, across various components of usually direct mail. So um, there really wasn't any email at that time um, as I date myself, but you know, you would you would test the outside envelope, you would test the the letterhead, you would test the the different paragraphs. And it was all very data driven and it was all very uh, statistically driven as well based on what we're testing. And I really enjoyed doing that because you could actually get um, reports back on, on who responded to what and you could see which which things worked and which combination. And um, you could optimize your database based on that those learnings and insights. And it was just a really good understanding of how to really use data to drive a business. Over time, I started to, um, you know, I ended up getting married, we moved and switched around. And I, and as, as, as a result of getting married and moving, I started working at some agencies that were doing a lot of not only um, direct marketing from um, a male standpoint, but also direct response television, which is different than your traditional branded DTC um, television, where it's very measurable. I did a lot of that, doing the creative, doing the testing, and also doing some radio. So really doing omni-channel before there was even a lot of the internet involved. This is in the early days too of, of the internet. And there was some, some banner advertising and things like that. But again, everything was very measurable with what we did. And you could really see the impact of what you were doing. So I really enjoyed that. And I also enjoyed the creative aspect to it as well. And then over time, again, like I didn't, I couldn't say to you like, oh, I wanted to work for an agency as an account executive. And you know, that really wasn't my dream. I didn't even know that was an option. But, and while I was doing it, while I enjoyed it, it wasn't sort of my life's ambition either. But over time, um, my husband, when I, when we got married, he was working for Merck Pharmaceuticals and he's still working for them to this day is a testament to his loyalty to the company, but also what a, what a wonderful company Merck is as well. But he really encouraged me over time to get into the pharmaceutical side. He felt that the work I was doing in this direct response database space could be leveraged in healthcare. And because it really wasn't being used that way. I actually, it ended up having an opportunity to go, I was hired by Wyeth Pharmaceuticals and they're now, you know, they were acquired by Pfizer many years ago, but I, I joined them in their center of excellence for digital marketing because over time as I was adapting the work I was doing, it was more moving more and more into the digital space. So email, website design, um, and various things like that as that medium was um, developing in and becoming what it is today. And so I, that's where, you know, when I, when I got to the pharmaceutical side of the business, that's where 
I really was like, okay, this is where I need to, because I, I like this idea of, well, I ne- didn't go to medical school. There's, there's feeling that you are able to help people that have a health issue. You are able to have, there was the creative aspect for it, uh, to it for me. I was working on, um, in this digital center of excellence, working in their women's health group. So I was working in areas that I was very passionate about, um, whether it was uh, women's depression or, or contraception or menopause, uh, management of menopausal symptoms. It's, you know, I am a woman. So those things are really important to me and to the people in my life. So I felt like I was able to add value there and I really enjoyed it. Plus the fact in the marketing space, you know, we got to do a lot of market research with focus groups and really hearing people and um, understanding their pain points and you're getting these insights that you just, you don't know what a, what a person feels. And, you know, and I think in the pharma space, which is where I am to this day, we talk about these patient journeys all the time, but we talk about it so much from an episodic point in time around the clinic, you know, and it's the journey is really these micro moments that, you know, it could be anything that prevents you from even walking into the doctor doctor's office because life gets in your way and all the other touch points in between. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand the headspace you're in. If we don't understand the financial situation you're in or the logistical situation that you're in, if, you're, if your car breaks down, we have no way to understand what your journey truly is. And so I, I saw that as a window into really understanding how people are dealing with these things. And I mean, I'm a patient myself, we're all patients. And we know that it's not just like this pop from here to here, to here, to here, to here. It's it's a lot of things that get in the way. And so I really, um, while I was involved in, in marketing for both patient and healthcare provider side, I really was drawn to patient side because I just felt it was so relatable again, because I am a patient and my family and my friends are, we're, all of us, we're all patients. So I know what that's like. And I know where my micro points are. Those are things that need to be taken into consideration as we think about how do we improve the healthcare of the future. Long story short, my ambition now is to try to change and improve the healthcare of the future so that the experience is something that that everybody benefits from, in particular the patient. And it's it becomes you know a much improved experience where they have an outcome and it's not so a positive outcome and it's not so frustrating and challenging and intrusive to their everyday life. And I think where we stand now in this space with all the technological advancements that we're seeing with digital and technology and data, as well as different modalities that don't even have to be technical that can support that experience is in this innovation space. That's where I play now. I'm I'm now um, at Novo Nordisk. I've been at the company 14 years and I'm leading up our digital transformation and innovation group, which is in essence an innovation incubator focused on the U.S. market based on our challenges. Uh, We have our own lab. It's called the APIS lab. And that is where we are fully focused on what is our patient customer's root cause pain point and problem to solve. And how can we leverage innovation, whether it's high technology, low touch, or high touch, low technology. My point being that innovation isn't just about technology. It can be about relationships. It can be about a human and a human engagement or a different different operating model. It doesn't have to be digital or technological, which is, I think, where a lot of people's heads go when you talk about innovation in the healthcare space. You put it so accurately. A lot of times now we hear so much about digital, digital marketing, innovation, whole technology wrappers around everything. So somebody who's starting just new, you know, who's very passionate, just like you, and more and more companies are saying, you know, it's all about patients, you know, being patient-centric. So if somebody's really passionate about having a career as yours, which is very patient-centric, but also dabbles a lot with, you know, innovative stuff, not just technology, but other aspects of it. 
what would you recommend them to do? Where should they start? What kind of roles or degree that they should be pursuing? Sure. I mean, I think that there are a couple different facets. I mean, obviously you want to understand the technology. You want to understand the engineering. You want to understand how it works. Um, the technical side is important, right? But I think equally important, maybe even more important, and this is something that I feel gets lost. You need to design for the human experience first. The technology, the data, the digital should follow that because you want to design to solve your customer's problem in a way that they can that works for them in their everyday life and I feel like you know we've had such a, even like with code there's such a push and acceleration to like get this digital stuff going and let's really leverage it and that's that's great there's so much learning and it's it's not a bad thing but I think we're realizing that while this stuff works it's just like our like medication it works but if people don't use it if they don't know if they don't know how to use it they don't know how to take the medicine they don't know how to use the technology, it has no value. And if you're going to make me do one more thing in my already busy day, um, I, I'll maybe do it every now and then. So the important thing, if you're coming into this space or want to come into the space as um, a person coming up, understanding that human experience, designing for the human being first is your first step. And, and the design, the technology, the engineering should follow that. Along the way, did you have certain role models or mentors who really helped you understand your potential and go after it and how did you find them yeah I mean yes for sure I mean I think um, my earliest mentors like I said I had great parents they're still to this day I'm blessed to still have them they're still amazing they're always there to guide me I also had wonderful grandparents that were also very much a part of my life and again really grounding me and always giving me support and confidence but also holding me accountable it was not like you know that we were we were a no excuse family it's like you get it done and if you don't there are no excuses. And if somebody asks you to do it, you do it, you drive it, you don't, you know, ask a, a million reasons why or how you get figured out. And so they gave me but they gave me the tools to do that. I always had the confidence to know that I could do these things. And but I also knew that you can't do it alone. And it's important to seek wise counsel, have those people, those mentors, those people that you trust to go to to help and advise you. And so over the years, I've had, you know, there have been a couple of teachers in my life in high school and in college. Also, um, through, you know, the work that I've done, I've, I've met people along the way that have continued to stay in my life. And I, I've just had dinner with one of them a couple of weeks ago to advise me on, you know, different aspects of my life, whether it's professional or even personal or relationship type of things. But I've also, I mean, I've also done things where I've paid for a mentor, you know, I, I paid to be a part of a program to have a mentor. And while those are, those are good and helpful, I've never gotten the value out of them. Like I have the ones that I've, I've develop organically because um, I, I mean, it could be that I didn't really know how to use them the way I probably should have optimally, or maybe they just don't know me as well as some of the other, other mentors in my life do. And they can kind of, they, they can get in your head in a way that someone that you are just kind of working with in a contractual manner isn't, isn't going to get. And so I'm a big fan of, I wouldn't say don't do those types of things, but really it's building that organic sort of stable of mentors. It's really important and making sure that you're not getting a group of people that are just going to tell you what you want to hear. There's a really, I don't know if anybody's ever seen this, but, um, or if you've seen this, but the Wall Street Journal is a newspaper that I love to read. I like to read hard copy, old school, and I love the weekend section on Saturdays. And it's in the business section they have, they always do a profile on an industry leader and who is their personal board of directors. And I think that's just great. And, and I and I like to, not that I'm a head of industry, but I like to think I've got my own personal board of directors. 
and I tap into them. And um, I think it's important that everybody has had their own personal board of directors to get them through life. So important. Um, and I read that section, by the way, I love it too. <laughs> you have <laughs> yeah. so many different aspects of people you otherwise would not know. Yeah. One other thing that always comes up uh, in a couple of our focus groups is the fact networking, right? Women don't network as hard and maybe not as extensively as men do. And sometimes that's, that's a big loss. Like we need to be networking. How have you developed those strategies to really overcome the inhibitions that women in general do um, in networking? Yeah. You know, that is, it's such an interesting, honestly, I feel like it's this conundrum because in a number of the organizations, like, so when I work at Nova Nordisk and worked at, at YF, we definitely had these very specific women networking network that were very, very um, intentional, which is great. The guys never did that. Like, why, why is it that we have to create these specific entities and the guys don't? So that's always, and so I, I feel like women are good at networking. I think we just think about it differently, or I don't know if the dynamics are such that it doesn't work the same way for women as it does for men. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think that's a really interesting concept. I do think that women are good networkers. I think we don't give ourselves enough credit. I just don't know if we're maybe applying it in a way that is seen as successful as our male counterparts in the business world. I don't know. I mean, I will tell you, I'm, um, I enjoy talking with people. I enjoy getting to know people from different perspectives and different industries. I really enjoy networking in particular with people in completely different industries because their, their understanding and uh, ways of engaging their customers are, are oftentimes very different from how we do it in the healthcare and the pharma space, but they tend to have such a better understanding of, of the experience of the person. And I think, you know, we are challenged in the healthcare space by um, HIPAA constraints and, and privacy, privacy constraints, but but there should be ways that we should be able to do this better. And I, I just think that we haven't necessarily had the burning platform to, to really roll up our sleeves and pay attention to the, the very specific customer needs and demands that you might have seen in other, other industries where the, the, the competition is much tighter or uh, they just have different ways of um, how they think about their, their product or service. So my networking, I, I try to do things, I try to engage in areas that sit outside the, the pharma box. I'm very much about looking at the innovation space. Uh, there's a great organization called Singularity University. Um, they're based out of the, the West Coast, but um, it is, it's a community of futurists that are, um, they actually have programming as well. I've been to some of their, um, their events as well as I, I did their week-long ex executive program back in 2017. And it is really, um, you know, their, their whole mission is looking at these 12, I think it's 12 now, these 12 major massive world global challenges. So it's like energy, healthcare, food, you know, food shortages, um, the environment, financial resources, you know, all, all these things in a desire to, to democratize all of it and make the world a better place. They are looking at all these different dimensions and listening to them. It's very inspiring. And a lot of the stuff is transferable to the healthcare space. And so we have to get ourselves out of the healthcare way of thinking in that box and, and look at what others are doing and, and really think about things that are absolutely mind-blowing and ridiculous. How can we maybe make that real? Because those things are starting to happen. I mean, we are now able to generate human organs and with stem cell therapies, and we're able to help some people regain feeling from after paralysis or regain hearing after, after never being able to hear at all. So some of these crazy things that we think could never, could never happen just might. And so it's really that talking with people that, that imagine what could be as opposed to, well, we can't do that because of 
these reasons, you know. So if you had to give yourself, your younger self, two pieces of advice, now knowing everything you know at this point in your life, what would that be? Well, I mean, I think it's definitely take some of the pressure off because I, I've always been, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I can be a stressed person and I, I want to deliver. I want to do things right. I want to do good. I don't want to do harm. And am I do, but you know, always kind of, I would question myself a lot. Like, is this the right thing to be doing? And so kind of take that pressure off and go with it. Because as I look back, you know, you, you have to stay in motion. You have to, you have to do, you, you don't just sit back and let things happen. You, you have to have accountability. You have to have, you have to have skin in this game, but you know, give yourself the grace to know that when you fail, it's not a loss, it's a learning and you move forward from that. And um, fortunately the failings in my life haven't been so significant. I can't recover from them because those things do happen. It's been an opportunity to pivot and move forward and really think about the future. And I'm, I'm very much a future thinker. I don't like, I don't like the past so much. Like it's important to remember the fact, the past. I do a lot of reading about history. I think that's important, but I don't want to live in the past. I, I won't even go to a class reunion because it's just, I don't want to, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. I want to stay in touch with people, but I don't want to go remember the good old days because uh, that's just not the kind of person that I am for some reason. So maybe I shouldn't ask this, but if you had to, if, if you could go back and fix one thing in yep. life, that you, you know you messed up, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I, I do think about this, like, what if, what if I could have sucked it up and dealt with biology 101 in college and moved forward in that space? Because I, I do believe that being a physician is one of the one of the noblest things you can do. Obviously, I'm biased. I mean, my father was a physician and I, he's like a superhero to me. He's done, you know, so much good in his life. And I want you know, I wanted to be like that. But then, you know, there's no guarantee I would have, I would have been good. There's no guarantee I would have graduated. There was no guarantee that maybe I would have graduated, but I would have graduated last in my class. And that means you're still a doctor, but you're not that, maybe you're not, you know, as good as you wanted to be, you know? So, so I do think about that from a perspective, but when I, when I do talk about stuff like that, like with my dad and my family, like, oh, stop, like, you know, it's don't worry about those things, you know? So. So having seen so many women in your career, you have reports, you have worked for other women. What are some of the mistakes we do as women that we can maybe correct to get even more from careers and lives? Yeah, I think um, that we shouldn't limit ourselves. I think women by nature are have a lot of empathy, um, being the nurturer, the biological, by biology, you know, we have the babies and you, you raise them and you nurture them. And so you've got that nurturing piece. And you, I think that it's, you put, you put a lot of consent consideration into how things are going to impact other people and don't necessarily put yourself first all the time in the working environment it is important to see yourself as first and you know and and to go for these opportunities don't say no to an opportunity because you and I think things have changed a lot especially after covid where I think that there's a there's a lot more opportunity to take on bigger opportunities that before like you felt like you couldn't do it all because you're you're raising your family and doing all these things but there's a lot more consistency session being made to, to ensure that you are successful and you can do it all. And that we don't have to overload people. We, 
we can create an environment that is balanced for them to be able to have a home life and a career with upward mobility. So I would say you don't self-limit, don't tell yourself no without inquiring and asking and getting the, the full insight and the information. You know, don't be afraid to have the difficult conversations. And you know, that that's that is difficult in and of itself. But I think those are the things that once you start to do that, you have more confidence. And it's not what you say, it's how you say it is really important. I think the other thing too is give yourself the credit you deserve. I think it's a it's very female thing to kind of downplay our accomplishments or our successes or what we've contributed or what we've led. Whereas I think our counterparts don't have the same thing. In fact, they'll even take credit for other people. So, you know, you, I would never take credit for somebody else's work, but own what you own what you deserve. Great, great advice. On the fun side of the note, any fun facts that not a lot of people know about you? Uh, there's probably a lot of really weird stuff about me that I don't think is weird. But um, one thing I will say that when I've shared this before, people are like surprised. I don't know why, but I love horror movies. I love really scary stuff. And I am always looking for a really, really good horror movie, which they're just so few and far between, or a really good, like smart, like ghost story type of thing. I actually, I actually do a lot. I look at a lot of foreign horror films. I've actually taken classes in it because I think it's so interesting, the different, the different perspectives that different countries take versus how we do things. Uh, we're very slasher here. Just, I love it. I love it. But, um, but there are other, <laughs> there are other um, horror genres that are really cool too. Like the, you have the really psychological stuff, which I love that and the ghosty stuff, which is very popular Dan. And so I just, I just love the horror genre because it's, it's so fascinating to me because even, even the classics like Frankenstein and Dracula, they come from a place of fear of the real world, fear of a monster, something, something bad coming after you, somebody that's different. Frankenstein was different. He was actually a very gentle, gentle being, but he was misunderstood. And, you know, Dracula wanting to like suck the life out of you. We, we have vampires in our life. They're real. They're just not sucking your blood. They're just taking your energy. So I just see a lot of applications in the real world. And I think it's really funny at times to compare the, c- compare and contrast. So I can talk about horror stuff all day long. So oh, that is very interesting. I did not know that about you. <laughs> so yeah. well, Amy, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful discussion. And I learned so much. So thank you for that. <laughs> Any closing comments for our listeners? You know, I just want to say thank you. And Divya, I've known you for a long time now and our paths have crisscrossed at different times and it's, you're always a ray of light. And it was so nice to see you last spring in uh, Savannah, Georgia at the uh, the event down there. Um, but this this podcast is awesome. I love your questions because they are just really, they were fun to read through and fun to discuss and think about, maybe really reflect on, quite frankly, I've, I'm very blessed in a lot of ways. I appreciate the opportunity to reflect on that and count my blessings though. Thank you for this opportunity. And thank you so much for being here and sharing your stories. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Amy. Absolutely. Great to see you.